0: Chapters three and four of Ward number six by Anton Chekhov. Translated by Constance Garnett, eighteen sixty one to nineteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter three. One autumn morning, Ivan Dmitritch, turning up the collar of his greatcoat and splashing through the mud, made his way by side streets and back lanes to see some artisan and to collect some payment that was owing he was in a gloomy mood as he always was in the morning in one of the side streets he was met by two convicts in fetters and four soldiers with rifles in charge of them ivan dmitritch had very often met convicts before and they had always excited feelings of compassion and discomfort in him but now this meeting made a peculiar strange impression on him it suddenly seemed to him for some reason that he too might be put into fetters and led through the mud to prison like that after visiting the artisan on the way home he met near the post office a police superintendent of his acquaintance who greeted him and walked a few paces along the street with him and for some reason this seemed to him suspicious at home he could not get the convicts or the soldiers with their rifles out of his head all day and an unaccountable inward agitation prevented him from reading or concentrating his mind. In the evening he did not light his lamp, and at night he could not sleep, but kept thinking that he might be arrested, put into fetters, and thrown into prison. He did not know of any harm he had done, and could be certain that he would never be guilty of murder, arson, or theft in the future either. But was it not easy to commit a crime by accident, unconsciously? And was not false witness always possible, and indeed miscarriage of justice?' It was not without good reason that the age-long experience of the simple people teaches that beggary and prison are ills none can be safe from. A judicial mistake is very possible, as legal proceedings are conducted nowadays, and there is nothing to be wondered at in it. People who have an official, professional relation to other men's sufferings, for instance judges, police officers, doctors, in course of time, through habit, grow so callous that they cannot, even if they wish it, take any but a formal attitude to their clients in this respect they are not different from the peasant who slaughters sheep and calves in the backyard and does not notice the blood with this formal soulless attitude to human personality the judge needs but one thing time in order to deprive an innocent man of all rights of property and to condemn him to penal servitude only the time spent on performing certain formalities for which the judge has paid his salary, and then it is all over. Then you may look in vain for justice and protection in this dirty, wretched little town a hundred and fifty miles from a railway station. And indeed, is it not absurd even to think of justice when every kind of violence is accepted by society as a rational and consistent necessity, and every act of mercy, for instance a verdict of acquittal, calls forth a perfect outburst of dissatisfied and revengeful feeling. In the morning, Ivan Dmitritch got up from his bed in a state of horror, with cold perspiration on his forehead, completely convinced that he might be arrested at any minute. Since his gloomy thoughts of yesterday had haunted him so long, he thought, it must be that there was some truth in them. They could not, indeed, have come into his mind without any ground whatever. A policeman, walking slowly, passed by the windows that was not for nothing here were two men standing still and silent near the house why were they silent an agonizing days and nights followed for ivan dmitritch everyone who passed by the windows or came into the yard seemed to him a spy or a detective at midday the chief of the police usually drove down the street with a pair of horses he was going from his estate near the town to the police department but Ivan Dmitritch fancied every time that he was driving especially quickly and that he had a peculiar expression. It was evident that he was in haste to announce that there was a very important criminal in the town. Ivan Dmitritch started at every ring at the bell and knock at the gate and was agitated whenever he came upon anyone new at his landlady's. When he met police officers and gendarmes, he smiled and began whistling so as to seem unconcerned. He could not sleep for whole nights in succession, expecting to be arrested. But he snored loudly and sighed as though in deep sleep, that his landlady might think he was asleep. For if he could not sleep, it meant that he was tormented by the stings of conscience. What a piece of evidence! Facts and common sense persuaded him that all these terrors were nonsense and morbidity, that if one looked at the matter more broadly, there was nothing really terrible in arrest and imprisonment so long as the conscience is at ease but the more sensibly and logically he reasoned the more acute and agonizing his mental distress became it might be compared with the story of a hermit who tried to cut a dwelling place for himself in a virgin forest the more zealously he worked with his axe the thicker the forest grew in the end ivan Dmitritch, seeing it was useless gave up reasoning altogether and abandoned himself entirely to despair and terror he began to avoid people and to seek solitude his official work had been distasteful to him before now it became unbearable to him he was afraid they would somehow get him into trouble would put a bribe in his pocket unnoticed and then denounce him or that he would accidentally make a mistake in official papers that would appear to be fraudulent or would lose other people's money it is strange that his imagination had never at other times been so agile and inventive as now when every day he thought of thousands of different reasons for being seriously anxious over his freedom and honour. But on the other hand, his interest in the outer world, in books in particular, grew sensibly fainter, and his memory began to fail him. In the spring, when the snow melted, there were found in the ravine near the cemetery two half-decomposed corpses, the bodies of an old woman and a boy bearing the traces of death by violence. Nothing was talked of but these bodies and their unknown murderers. That people might not think he had been guilty of the crime, Ivan Dmitritch walked about the streets smiling, and when he met acquaintances he turned pale, flushed, and began declaring that there was no greater crime than the murder of the weak and defenseless. But this duplicity soon exhausted him, and after some reflection he decided that in his position the best thing to do was to hide in his landlady's cellar he sat in the cellar all day and then all night then another day was fearfully cold and waiting till dusk stole secretly like a thief back to his room he stood in the middle of the room till daybreak listening without stirring very early in the morning before sunrise some workmen came into the house ivan dmitritch knew perfectly well that they had come to mend the stove in the kitchen but terror told him that they were police officers disguised as workmen he slipped stealthily out of the flat and, overcome by terror, ran along the street without his cap and coat. Dogs raced after him, barking. A peasant shouted somewhere behind him. The wind whistled in his ears, and it seemed to Ivan Dmitritch that the force and violence of the whole world was massed together behind his back and was chasing after him. He was stopped and brought home, and his landlady sent for a doctor. Dr. Andrey Yefimich, of whom we shall have more to say hereafter, prescribed cold compresses on his head and laurel drops, shook his head and went away, telling the landlady he should not come again, as one should not interfere with people who were going out of their minds. As he had not the means to live at home and be nursed, Ivan Dmitritch was soon sent to the hospital and was there put into the ward for venereal patients. He could not sleep at night, was full of whims and fancies, and disturbed the patients, and was soon afterwards, by Andrey Yefimitch's orders, transferred to ward Number 6. Within a year Ivan Dmitritch was completely forgotten in the town, and his books, heaped up by his landlady in a sledge in the shed, were pulled to pieces by boys. Chapter 4 Ivan Dmitritch's neighbor on the left hand is, as I have said already, the Jew Moiseka, His neighbor on the right hand is a peasant so rolling in fat that he is almost spherical, with a blankly stupid face utterly devoid of thought. This is a motionless, gluttonous, unclean animal who has long ago lost all powers of thought or feeling. An acrid, stifling stench always comes from him. Nikita, who has to clean up after him, beats him terribly with all his might, not sparing his fists and what is dreadful is not his being beaten that one can get used to but the fact that this stupefied creature does not respond to the blows with a sound or a movement nor by a look in the eyes but only sways a little like a heavy barrel the fifth and last inhabitant of ward number six is a man of the artisan class who had once been a sorter in the post office a thinnish fair little man with a good-natured but rather sly face to judge from the clear cheerful look in his calm and intelligent eyes he has some pleasant idea in his mind and has some very important and agreeable secret he has under his pillow and under his mattress something that he never shows anyone not from fear of its being taken from him and stolen but from modesty sometimes he goes to the window and turning his back to his companions puts something on his breast and bending his head looks at it If you go up to him at such a moment, he is overcome with confusion and snatches something off his breast. But it is not difficult to guess his secret. Congratulate me, he often says to Ivan Dmitritch. I have been presented with the Stanislav order of the second degree with the star. The second degree with the star is only given to foreigners, but for some reason they want to make an exception for me, he says with a smile, shrugging his shoulders in perplexity. That, I must confess, I did not expect. I don't understand anything about that, Ivan Dmitritch replies morosely. But do you know what I shall attain to sooner or later? The former sorter persists, screwing up his eyes slyly. I shall certainly get the Swedish polar star. That's an order it is worth working for, a white cross with a black ribbon. It's very beautiful. Probably in no other place is life so monotonous as in this ward. In the morning the patients, except the paralytic and the fat peasant, wash in the entry at a big tub, and wipe themselves with the skirts of their dressing gowns. After that, they drink tea out of tin mugs, which Nikita brings them out of the main building. Everyone is allowed one mugful. At midday, they have soup made out of sour cabbage and boiled grain. In the evening, their supper consists of grain left from dinner. In the intervals, they lie down, sleep, look out of window, and walk from one corner to the other. And so every day. Even the former sorter always talks of the same orders. Fresh faces are rarely seen in Ward number 6. The doctor has not taken in any new mental cases for a long time, and the people who are fond of visiting lunatic asylums are few in this world. Once every two months, Semyon Lazarich, the barber, appears in the ward, How he cuts the patient's hair and how Nikita helps him to do it and what a trepidation the lunatics are always thrown into by the arrival of the drunken, smiling barber, we will not describe. No one even looks into the ward except the barber. The patients are condemned to see day after day no one but Nikita. A rather strange rumor has, however, been circulating in the hospital of late. It is rumored that the doctor has begun to visit Ward number 6. End of Chapters 3 and 4 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine